Well, good morning and welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here, and we are super excited that you are able to be with us this morning. We're super happy if you're able to be here in person. It's really good to see your faces, hear your voices. It's awesome. Um, And we're also happy if you've been able to connect with us online. Uh, Whichever way you have been able to do that, we are just glad you uh, took the time, made the space to engage with us. We all come together to engage with God. Uh, If you are uh, joining us online, I do want to draw your attention to our online platform at www.onelifeseattle.org slash live. It is there uh, with a lot of extras on it. It's got uh, online connection cards, access to our uh, prayer team, Bible tabs, uh, all kinds of cool stuff. So uh, chat, really cool. So uh, that's a great way to join us. If not, though, it's cool. You can join us through Facebook or YouTube or whatever works best for you. Uh, with that, let's, let's pray. Dear God, I give you great thanks this morning for this day and for your presence with us. Um, God, may we be reminded of how near you have drawn to us. Um, that in these times, um, we would know just your closeness, God, and the intimacy that is there uh, that you invite us into. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The house lights go off and the footlights come on. Even the chattiest stop chattering as they wait in the darkness for the curtain to rise. In the orchestra pit, the violin bows are poised. The conductor has raised the baton. In the silence of a midwinter dusk, there is far off in the deeps of it somewhere a sound so faint that for all you can tell, it may be only the sound of the silence itself. You hold your breath to listen. You walk up the steps to the front door. The empty windows at either side tell you nothing or almost nothing. For a second, you catch a whiff in the air of some fragrance that reminds you of a place you've never been and a time you have no words for. You are aware of the beating of your heart. The extraordinary thing that is about to happen is matched only by the extraordinary moment just before it happens. Advent is the name of that moment. The Salvation Army Santa Claus clangs his bell. The sidewalks are so crowded you can hardly move. Exhaust fumes are the chief fragrance in the air, and everybody is as bundled up against any sense of what all the fuss is really about as they are bundled up against the wind chill factor. But if you concentrate for an instant, far off in the deeps of yourself somewhere, you can feel the beating of your heart. For all its madness and lostness, not to mention your own, you can hear the world itself holding its breath. It's a poem by Frederick uh, Buchner, um, and I wanted to read that just to sort of get us in a space to, to think and to, and to be open, um, and also because we, we are on the edge of something, and, I, and so I had asked, Jessica had a word, there she is, yes, um, and so I want to ask her to share that. Um, so the last couple weeks, there's been um, some visions of like springs uh, welling up and the need to like bend down and partake in the spring. Um, and so this morning, um, I saw like four springs and hope, joy, peace, and love. And not only were they like these bubbling springs, but they were like uh, 
lit up. So there was all these like really beautiful colors coming out as the springs are bubbling up. And it was just like that extra invitation of like, look at the, look at this beauty that is here and um, waiting for us to partake in. But again, like it's all down low. And so just um, remembering that we have a responsibility in that we have to choose to partake in those springs and to enter into that space. Um, and that we're all invited and welcome into that space with whatever we are bringing with us or our past or our present or our future, whatever it is, like we are all invited into that space and welcome into that space, but we have to choose to partake. Awesome, thank you, Jessica. And I wanted that to sit with the, the Buchner words because some of us, um, we have been waiting um, we have been sitting on the doorstep. We have been thinking there's a light that's going to turn on. We are poised. Um, and Jessica's word just seemed to really sort of say, like, if you are awaiting, there is something for you. Um, but that's what this season is all about. It's a season in the church calendar where we enter into this time of waiting, this time of expectation and longing. And we honor the emotions and the thoughts and the life that goes into those things as we join with so many people who not only in the past have waited, but are still waiting. Waiting for help, waiting for a place to belong, a place where they can flourish, learn, heal, and participate. And so again, in this season, we enter into the honoring of the past waiting, and the present and the future waiting, and we remember it. So we don't ever forget the story of the God who's come into this world, into that waiting as the Savior in Jesus Christ. Because again, Advent just literally means, it's a, it's a Latin word, Adventus, but it means the arrival, coming, entrance, or appearance, particularly of something having great importance. And so we're waiting for that to arrive. And through this season, for the last four Sundays, leading up to it, each Sunday we've explored a different theme. Hope, peace, joy, and love been present in our candle lighting, been present in our worship. And then we're going to get to have 12 days after Christmas of what's called Christmas Tide, which is a really cool, fun time. Um, you're going to hear more about that later. And then that leads up to Epiphany, which hopefully you're going to hear more about too. But all these are just part of this church calendar that's really set up to help us remember these things. Because sometimes we forget and sometimes we get caught up in other things going on. But this liturgy, these moments, these, these rhythms are set in to help us Never forget. And so we don't forget Jesus' advent. And again, we don't forget those who are waiting. And this year's focus within that has been on this idea of things being unexpected within the advent story. It was really interesting as I was listening to um, a bunch of different things this week. Uh, there was a, a, a pastor um, who, uh, his name is A.J. Shirell. And uh, I was listening to a sermon of his from 2017, and uh, it was their Advent series, and he, uh, he said, you know, I have said the prayer, come Lord Jesus, more times in this year than in the entirety of my whole life. And then I immediately went to try to find recent sermons to see if he was still feeling that way. Like, was 2017 the time when I said it, or is now like totally eclipse 2017? Right, Because these last years have been really 
unique um, and unexpected, disruptive. Um, and, the, and there's part of the Advent story that is like that. And so we've looked at Jesus came at an unexpected time through unexpected people in an unexpected place. Today we're going to explore bringing unexpected love and what that means. And so we're going to jump around a little bit to start with. We're going to look at a passage from John, then a passage at Luke, and then back to a passage in John. So the first one is going to be John 1, 1 through 5. If you have your Bible, you can open it up, or the verses will be up on the screen uh, for you to join along. Uh, and you can read along, or you can just listen, whatever is uh, feeling good to you today. So uh, we got John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then Luke 2, 1-7. through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This is the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their town, their own town, to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem in the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And then back to John, a little bit further in that chapter, John 1, 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so what we're looking at today, we start from the beginning, the very beginning. We read in John, in the beginning was the Word. And the idea for John is that as he writes this, the people who are reading this, the people who are hearing it, some of them are going to automatically be launched back to Genesis the opening words of the Old Testament, the story of God's creation and the Spirit hovering over this chaos, these waters that are just spinning and turning and somehow bringing order out of that in creation. And John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God and the Word was with God. This idea of the word here is logos. It means literally word. It's spoken or written, but it's often with a focus on the content of the communication. So Jesus is this word of God. And the word was God and was with God. And John's language gives us insight here into the nature of God. Because how can God be God and this word also be God? Many Christians believe in what is called the Trinity, and it's this reality that God exists as three unique individual persons, but so united, so together, that it's not like they are one, but they are one. There's no disunity, no inequalities, only an ongoing movement of authentic, faithfully present love. That's how at another point, 
this same author, this guy named John, in 1 John says that God is love. Because you can't say that God is love if God doesn't exist as a community because love needs another. And so this God who is a community in their very nature, who is love, also created the universe. And if you tag into that Genesis passage again, if we take God is the Word, the Word is Jesus, and we have the Spirit hovering over the chaos in creation, we all of a sudden have all three persons of the Trinity present in creation. It's a beautiful picture of these three unique persons working together in coordination with one another. Again, not trying to overshadow the others. All moving in a kind of work with, uh, where they're moving around each other and there's like bobbing and weaving, but they're all exalting the others and never trying to push anyone down. Never getting in each other's way. I don't know if any of you have experienced this before, but in my house, in our kitchen, sometimes there's more than one person present in the kitchen. It seems to happen particularly in the morning. Um, and one person can be at the sink, and one person can be in the refrigerator, another person could be at the stove, and another person's just around um, and then if you bring the dog in, because do- if someone's in the kitchen, the dog is there because something's going to fall on the floor most likely, and so that's prime time for snacks. So the dog is there. And if for some reason the two cats are around, there's seven of us moving around in the kitchen. And it very rarely looks like this idea that I just described of the Trinity, right? There's always butts bumping and shoulders, and every now and then we laugh, and aha, uh-huh, and kind of roll around each other. Most of the time, it escalates, and there's kind of this grumpiness that ensues until one of us will bump, and then, and, and I'll just speak for myself, uh, bump someone, and then do something like this. Say this is the sink here, and both people are going towards the sink, and we bump, and then I'll go, yeah, go, go, and I'll get as far out as I can, and it's this really sort of passive-aggressive, but trying to make a power play kind of move to say, you know what, I'm big enough, I'll get out of the way, but I'm also acknowledging that you really annoyed me in that moment. That doesn't happen in the Trinity, right? And that doesn't always happen in my house. It's actually much more joyful than that, Uh, but that does happen. Um, But so, the God who is love, who created and holds all of creation keeps and sustains and brings flourishing to that life in creation, moves in a different way. And so then John says, in him Jesus was this life, and that life was the light of all humanity. So anywhere you go that you see light breaking into the darkness, that's God moving. And it doesn't matter if the people involved know God or not, because God moves where God wants to. There's light in the world. And I love the way it's phrased where it says, uh, so in some versions it says, and, and, the, and the, the darkness could not overcome the light. But in other versions it says the, the darkness couldn't comprehend the light. And I love that because it is true for us that we often look at understanding as a way of mastering something, of sort of conquering it, especially in Western culture. And so to say that the, the darkness could not comprehend the light, oh, that digs at us in a different way. Oh, it couldn't understand it? What do you mean? Like, it couldn't deal with it? What? It's much easier to say, oh, it was weaker. It couldn't overcome it. Because we can do the math. We can put that in an equation. But to say it couldn't comprehend it digs at us differently. 
So that's this word, right? And so we started big, kind of cosmos, universe kind of big, creation big, all humanity kind of big, and now we're going to get small, like we're going to get real small, infant, newborn, small. And in this, we're going to find some of our understandings of how this story played out may have been off. A few years ago, I think it was, Brian introduced us to some uh, ways of looking at this story of the birth of Jesus that were being rediscovered in Western Christianity. Um, And there are some uh, really key pieces in here, and it highlights something I want to get at. Now, so I want to start by saying Jesus was probably not born in a manger the way we think of it. Right? We typically think of Joseph and Mary coming in to Bethlehem. Mary's going into labor. They try to find an inn to stay in, but there's no inn and there's no room in the inn. And depending on how we're viewing it in that day, sometimes the innkeeper seems like they're just troubled and they can't do it. And sometimes they seem kind of mean. But uh, for whatever reason, there's no room at the inn. And so they end up going to this barn. That in, in the way we picture it, it's typically like way out, isolated from any other building. Right? And it might just be the way we sort of imagine it. But that's often the way we think about it, that it's out there, it's isolated. And there's something that we like about that, partially because that's our tradition, right? And it also lends to this sort of idea of Jesus being born into the messiness of things, right? And we talk about that a lot, right? That Jesus was born in this really difficult, messy world. And that's true. But it just may not have happened the way the way we think it did. And, and, and what we're going to discover is that um, it's mostly due to a misunderstanding about first century Palestinian life. Um, and so with that, we're going to transition into the Luke section, right? So we do have Joseph and Mary heading into Bethlehem because there's been a census ordered and everyone's got to go to their hometown to participate in this census, We also read that Joseph is of the line of David. And this tells us two things. It's highly likely that Joseph had relatives in Bethlehem. And even if he didn't, if he walked into Bethlehem and said, hey, I'm in the line of David, um, it would be similar when uh, my family, we had a chance to go to Italy and we went to the town of Loretto. My last name is Di Loretto, means of that town. And so my kids thought, if we walk into this town, we're pretty much like royalty, right? I mean, we can kind of come in and be like, hey, Di Loretto. And they're going to be like, oh, let's give you food and all kinds of other stuff. So that's, but that's what it, it would have been like, is if David or Joseph would have come in and said, hey, I'm of the tribe of David they would have instantly given him space, right? They would have found a way to make it work. And so this begs the question, why didn't Mary and Joseph go to stay at a relative's house? And it turns out most likely they did. Because this word in that, is, that, that we've translated as in is more likely guest room. Um, and, and the typical home in uh, first century Palestine, and I'm going to get to this in an image a little more later, but it was set up in a way where it had a, like a, like a very small place on top. Uh, it was like a three-story thing. So there was a, a ground level where all, a bunch of animals could stay. There was a middle level that was like a living space with kind of a lofted thing going on. And then on the roof, there was this little kind of, uh, like a gazebo kind of thing that was often used for storage, but it was really used for guests. It was considered the guest chamber or the guest room. Right? And the word that, uh, that we read in our passage here that is translated as in is this word kataluma. Um, and uh, it, we translate it as 
in, but it's really, again, more guest room. And we see Luke do this later on in Luke 22.11, where Jesus is uh, sent his, his crew out to go secure a place for them to have the Last Supper. And so it, this conversation is, goes like this. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room, the kataluma, in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And so it's going to a specific person's house, and it's eating in the guest room of that house. Right? And then in another spot in Luke, um, uh, he uh, actually phrases it differently. He's talking about, uh, this is the um, Good Samaritan, thank you, brain, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. He says uh, in Luke 10, 34, and then I came to him, bandaged up his wounds, wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn, and the word there is pando kihoyan, and took care of him. Right? So there's a different word for in than there is for this guest chamber idea. And when you look at the Arabic and what's called the Syriac or the Aramaic, one of the languages that Jesus spoke, Cataluma is always translated as guest chamber. And so a better reading of this would be, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the guest chamber. And I also changed so it doesn't say no room because one of the things that gets confusing for us is when we think of an inn, we think of individual rooms, right? I'm going to go and get a room in an inn. This was not the case in first century Palestine. It was literally a room and there was everybody in there. So it was really, it's, there's not a place because there's just no spot in this room of other people for you to lay down. And so the guest chamber in this house is full, um, probably because there are other relatives there, because there are lots of people coming in, participating in the census. And so there was no room for them in the guest chamber, so they had to go somewhere else, and they most likely went downstairs. Um, now, does this change much in the story? Yes and no, because it means that Jesus was not born way off out in a barn like we often like to think about it, with only Joseph and Mary present. What it means is that God subjected himself to something unexpected. What it means is that Jesus was born most likely in the very same manner that most other kids in first century Palestine were born. In a family home with lots of family around caring for him. What must it have been like for the Son of God to be well-loved by family? Now, I don't know what Jesus did or did not understand in those early days of his life. There's all kinds of things people think with him being fully God and fully human. My own leanings are is that he was born as a human and he just, in that time, he was, he was fully God but fully human and submitted to being fully human. And so any more than any other child would have thoughts about that. I think that's where Jesus was at. Now, if some of us are feeling uncomfortable um, or wondering what, what is Greg going to try to take away from my Christmas story next? Is it going to be the animals in the manger? No. You actually get to keep those um, because, as I said before, here's an image of the house. Um, you can kind of see again that lower level and that lofted middle area. This one doesn't show the storage place on the top, but it, it would have been there. And so that lower area, they would bring animals in at night, and it served two purposes. One, 
Um, your animals, it's way, way more difficult to steal your animals when they're in your home. Uh, and two, at times when it did get cold, all the animals in there would generate a little bit of heat uh, in the house. Now, they would have generated a lot of other things in the house that for us is like, ugh. But first century Palestine thought really differently about that. Here's another picture, um, just a little more of a, tried to be a realistic uh, mock-up of, of what that would have looked like. And so, what we would have seen then is that, first of all, the guest room up at the top, um, when they say there's no room, it was because there were people in there, but also it was not really big enough to be uh, birthing human beings in, right? Because there were often lots of family members present helping out with the midwives and taking care of things, and so they probably would have moved them out of that room anyways, right? And so where did they go? Well, they went down a level. Right? And maybe they went down another level. And so when we talk about Jesus being laying in a manger, there was very likely a food trough in that lower level. And that was probably where they laid Jesus. And so the animals could have been there. Jesus could have been in the manger. We get to keep all that. But this idea that Jesus was with family is really key. Because God put himself into a place where he got to experience a kind of love that he had not experienced before. Human hands holding him. Human voices singing to him. Human eyes looking upon him. Human ears attending to him. God entrusted humanity with his son in this fragile state. And the other thing this brings to mind is that God loves particularly. And by that I mean that God loves us individually as well as as part of the entirety of humanity. When you love another person who is your friend, your spouse, your sibling, however the relationship may be, you typically don't just love them because they're another human being. You love them in lots of ways because they are that unique individual that they are. There are lots of human beings on the planet. But there are some that I love differently because I have unique relationships with them. And God, although he does love all of humanity, and Jesus was certainly born so that all humankind could enter into a restored relationship with Jesus, but God loves you individually also, uniquely, completely. You have God's full attention and his full love. God's love doesn't have to be parsed up and divided amongst everyone. It is completely there for you. And each and every one of us, along with the rest of creation, is invited to live in that love uniquely and yet also as part of the human race collectively. It's a really beautiful thing. And so we got small for a moment to remember that Jesus got small, wonderfully small, so that we could know love, so that we could know God. And then back to John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then a verse from 1 John, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So now we're going to get big again. 
an article I read recently from Christianity Today. The article's from a few years ago, but I read it recently by a guy named W. David Taylor called Why Putting Christ Back in Christmas is Not Enough. And he's talking about the differences between what he refers to as the American Christmas story and the biblical Christmas story. And his point is that the American Christmas story and the biblical stories are not just different, but they're both really big. And so when we try to take Jesus from the biblical Christmas story and put him into the American Christmas story, what often happens is Jesus gets kind of co-opted by the American Christmas story, and we end up kind of trying to push and fit Jesus into this other story. But Jesus doesn't fit. Jesus disrupts. And you should really go read the article. It's, it's really good, and I'm not going to get to all of it. But at the end, he kind of starts talking about, so, so should we participate in the American Christmas story? And he says, by all means, enjoy the twinkling lights that dot your neighborhood. Enjoy sugar cookies, right? Enjoy having a, a good laugh or cry watching your favorite specials. Do all the homemade decorations. Listen to your favorite Christmas songs. He says, enjoy them because the grace and goodness of God are not absent from these things. And they are ways for us to be wholly present, faithfully present to the lives and longings of our neighbors. But remember that the story of Christmas in America, the story that it tells, cannot be confused with the gospel story. And he said this, which I think is really amazing. Because while the former makes plenty of room for wonderment and kindly regard for our neighbors. The latter makes it possible for both joy and sorrow, both justice and mercy to coexist in the redemptive tale of God. And so we get big again. Because in this small baby that we're celebrating the birth of is the love of God that is big enough to hold, keep, and sustain the world and all that it is. And that that's the issue with any other narrative. No other story has the capacity. No other story has the love or the life that can be in the very small and contain the very big. No other love can do but a love this big not only can do but has done. I'd like to invite the worship team up in just a moment. They're going to play instrumentally, give you a few minutes to reflect Um, The prayer team is also going to be available for you. If you would like to uh, receive prayer, please um, uh, take some time to do that. Um, Usually at this time, uh, we have some questions for you to reflect on, um, but I'm not going to do that this morning. Um, Sometimes we need to take a break from application um, uh, and and trying to figure out what steps I need to do to to be something different or do something different. And instead, I just want to close by sharing one more thing with you. Uh, This guy, Henry Nouwen, in this uh, book called Life of the Beloved, was reflecting on Matthew 3, 6, um, 3, 3, 16 and 17, which says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now one says in these passages, he finds an inner conviction that the words, you are my beloved, reveals the most intimate truth about human beings, whether they belong to any particular tradition or faith or not. And he says, all I want to tell you is that you are the beloved. 
And all I hope is that you can hear these words as spoken to you with all the tenderness and force that love can hold. My desire is that these words would reverberate in every corner of your being. You are the beloved. Let's pray. God, again, I am thankful for your presence here with us. God, that you have revealed to us in so many ways, whether, whether it's in a kind smile or kind words or uh, feeling courage or, or, or uh, whatever, but in this time you've also spoken through this baby and through this life that was the light for all humankind. And I pray for each one of us, just this very thing that Henry Nouwen prayed, that the words, you are my beloved, would reverberate through every, every space that we have, God, in every way possible. Yeah, I ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen.